Greetings, everyone. In the Hebrew Scriptures are many prophecies relating to a Messiah who was to come and bring salvation to Israel and to the world. In the New Testament, this Messiah is identified as one who came in the flesh. Although the Jews were looking for the Messiah at the time Jesus was born, he did not come in the manner or for the purpose expected by the Jews to throw off the yoke of human domination and immediately set up a world-ruling government, which is what they expected would happen when the Messiah came. And for this and other reasons, Jesus was, in the final analysis, rejected by most of the Jews as far as any messianic claims are concerned. But did Jesus nevertheless fulfill prophecies of the Old Testament that would identify him as the prophesied Messiah? And are there other prophecies yet to be fulfilled that will further cement his claim to being the promised Messiah? In today's sermon, which is part two of two parts on this subject, I plan to discuss further evidence that will prove beyond any doubt whatsoever that Jesus is the Messiah. Jonah, a prophet in Israel, was given, probably sometime in the early early 8th century B.C., a commission by God to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was reputed to be the greatest city on earth at the time. It was the capital of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Nineveh was judged wicked in God's sight. Jonah was charged with the task of issuing a warning from God for the Ninevites to repent of their wickedness. Instead of doing what God had commanded, Jonah fled, boarding a ship to flee to Tarshish, probably a port in what is now Spain. And God caused a storm to arise, which led to Jonah being cast into the sea. And as we read in Jonah 1 and verse 17, Jonah 1 and verse 17, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, as he was in this fish, in the belly of the fish, Jonah cried out to God. We read in Jonah chapter 2 what happened. It says, Jonah 2, beginning with verse 1, Then that Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land.
In the fish's belly, Jonah faced certain death apart from God's intervention. It was as though Jonah had been in the grave. As he exclaimed, out of the belly of Sheol I cried. And he also mentioned as if he had been in the pit. Sheol actually means pit or grave. And so from Jonah's point of view, he was as good as dead and in his grave. Being delivered from the belly of the fish after three days and three nights, Jonah was instructed again to go to Nineveh and deliver God's message. This time Jonah obeyed, and we read in Jonah chapter 3 and verse 4, Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. It mentions there that it would have taken three days to walk across the city. But he entered the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now this alarmed the people and the king of Nineveh, who was the head of a great empire. And the king took heed and pro- proclaimed a fast in Nineveh. And he said, quoting from Jonah 3, beginning in verse 8, Jonah 3 and verse 8, the king said, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So Nineveh was given 40 days to repent. And they did. One of the few times in history, if not the only time, when people in mass have actually repented at the preaching of God's message. But they repented. And so God gave them a reprieve from the destruction that he had determined to send upon them. Now their repentance was not very deep and it did not last long. And... So in or about 612 B.C., which would have been probably well over 100 years later, probably more like 150 years or so later, the city of Nineveh was destroyed by the Medes and Babylonians, along with allied peoples who included Scythians and Chimerians. Now, Scythians and Chimerians are names given to some of the peoples of the Israelite tribes who had been taken captive by Assyria in the 8th century. And their capital, the capital of the Israelites, had been destroyed by the Assyrians, their capital being Samaria. And so... With the destruction of Nineveh in about 612 B.C. came the end of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, which had dominated much of Asia and North Africa for more than 200 years. During his earthly ministry, Jesus was challenged to show the people of Judah a sign that his authority was from heaven. We read in Matthew 12, beginning verse 38, Matthew 12, verse 38, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, 
saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The preeminent sign that would prove his identity as the Messiah, the identity of Jesus as the Messiah was to be the sign of Jonah. A part of the sign of Jonah, though not all of it as we will see, but a part of it, an important part of it, was that he would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, interestingly, it is this very sign, this very sign that most of those who profess to be Christians deny. Most Christian churches do not teach that Jesus died and was in the grave for three days and three nights. If they teach a belief in the death and resurrection of Christ as a literal fact at all, most of them teach that Jesus died on a Friday afternoon and was resurrected on a Sunday morning. Thus, he would have been dead and in the grave for only about one and a half, 24-hour days, or two nights in one day. It's interesting that in an opinion poll of adults in Great Britain taken in 2007, conducted by the British Broadcasting Company, or corporation, whatever, whatever it is, BBC, about 25% of those who identified themselves as Christians in this survey did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, about 25%. However, about 90% of active Christians, which is defined in the survey as someone who attends church services at least once a month, about 90% of the active Christians, as they call them, believe in the resurrection of Christ, according to the survey. However, only about 58% of those, the ones who are active Christians, say they believe in the resurrection, only about 58% of those believe the Bible's version of the resurrection, as they understand it, which is not very well. Now, what other version they might believe, I have no idea, but according to the survey, only about 58% of those who said they believe in the resurrection believe in the Bible's version. 50% of the total number surveyed said they did not believe in the resurrection at all. So we have a supposedly Christian nation, Great Britain, where half the people, according to this survey, don't believe at all in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And a quarter of those who claim to be Christians, that is, those who claim to be Christians, don't believe in the resurrection. And only a little over 25% who claim to be Christian ostensibly believe the Bible's version of the resurrection. In a similar poll conducted by the BBC in 2019, two years later, it was revealed that less than half, less than half of the Christians in the United Kingdom 
believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the world's sins, as they put it in their survey results. Less than half or 46% of the Christians in the United Kingdom, that is people who claim to identify themselves as Christians, in the United Kingdom believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the world's sins. And yet, more than 8 of 10 regular church-going Christians believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again to provide forgiveness of sins. So you have about 80% now in this survey, two years later, 80% instead of 90% who believe in the resurrection. These are people who attend church regularly. Why is that important? Well, for one thing, Jesus' resurrection is a critical part of the proof that he was and is the Messiah. And not only that, now that it has occurred, believing that he was indeed resurrected is itself crucial to salvation, according to Scripture. We read in Romans 10, beginning with verse 9, Romans 10 and verse 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Notice what it says. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now notice here that what is being described is not merely an empty confession or a superficial confession, and it's not a fruitless faith. What is being described is a true faith, not an empty faith based on false beliefs and traditions. It is a belief unto righteousness. In other words, it's a belief that leads to obedience to God's commandments that results in the real fruits of the Holy Spirit, the fruits of righteousness, including the rejection of idolatry, including obedience to the Sabbath commandment and other of God's commandments. But belief in the resurrection is included here as being necessary for salvation. Was Jesus resurrected? Was Jesus resurrected? As we've seen, a significant number of those who profess to be Christians don't believe Jesus was resurrected. Yet, those who studied the matter closely agree that not only was Jesus crucified, as the Bible says, but also that he was resurrected. And that includes even some people who don't even claim to be Christians. As a matter of fact, in this survey, about, I believe it was uh, 10% of the people surveyed who did not even claim to be Christians actually believed that Jesus was, in fact, resurrected. The fact that Jesus existed as a historical person is currently accepted by virtually all serious scholars who have studied the matter, despite the general skepticism of this age. We read in a footnote 
in a Wikipedia article on the historical Jesus this statement, quote, In a 2011 review of the state of modern scholarship, Bart Ehrman, a secular agnostic, wrote, quote, He certainly existed as virtually every competent scholar of antiquity, Christian or non-Christian, agrees. And then another statement, this is from a book entitled An Historian's Review of the Gospels. The author, Michael Grant, states, quote, In recent years, no serious scholar has ventured to postulate the non-historicity of Jesus, or at any rate, very few. And they have not succeeded in disposing of the much stronger, indeed very abundant, evidence to the contrary. If this seems a little convoluted, what he's saying is that there is virtually no serious scholar who denies that Jesus was in fact a real person. Acceptance of the fact of Jesus' crucifixion is also accepted among virtually all serious historians who have studied the matter. In Jesus Remembered by James D.G. Dunn, Concerning the baptism and crucifixion of Jesus, he states that these two facts in the life of Jesus command almost universal assent. Baptism and crucifixion. In other words, what he's saying is that virtually all scholars accept that these events happened, even if they may doubt other aspects of the biblical record. And In Jesus, a Revolutionary Biography, the author John Dominic Croson states, quote, that he was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be, since both Josephus and Tacitus agree with the Christian accounts on at least that basic fact. Now, Josephus was a Jewish writer, a Jewish historian of the first century. Tacitus was a pagan Roman writer or historian. And both of them mention in their writings the crucifixion of Jesus Christ as a historical fact. So we have virtually all scholars who have actually done the research believe that the fact that Jesus existed is according is uh, true, just as Scripture says, and also that Jesus was crucified by the Romans, just as the Bible tells us. They may not believe much else, or they may believe a lot of the rest of what the Bible says, or all of it, but they virtually all agree on those two things. What about the resurrection, though? There are powerful proofs of Jesus' resurrection that are also available. Some of those evidences are, number one, that it's abundantly attested in the New Testament that many of Jesus' disciples saw him after he was resurrected and that they believed this to the core of their being is proven by the fact that they were willing to undergo persecution and martyrdom to defend this belief. Now, a lot of people will sacrifice themselves for a belief 
but very few would sacrifice for themselves for a belief that they know to be a lie or a, a, an opinion that they know to be a lie. It's highly unlikely that they would have uniformly suffered as they did for something that they knew, in fact, was a lie. There are nearly 300 scriptures in the New Testament attesting to the resurrection. One of them, one of the most important and one of the what is believed to be the earliest statements in the scriptures involving the resurrection is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And many scholars believe that Paul was repeating information that he had been given by other apostles who were there before he was, although he was there quite early. But in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning of verse 3, it says, as Paul was speaking to the Corinthians, he said, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, Cephas is a name for Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren, brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. So here we have that he was, he was murdered and buried and resurrected the third day, that he was seen by Peter and the other, 12, uh, the other apostles of the 12 apostles, and that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. And most of those were still living when Paul wrote this. He says some have fallen asleep. Then he goes on to say, after that he was seen by James, James being Jesus' brother, and then by all the apostles. Now, as I mentioned, when this was written, many who had seen Jesus after his resurrection were still alive. This was probably written maybe about 20 years or so after, after the resurrection, and the death and resurrection of Christ. But many who had seen Jesus after his resurrection were still alive. And they could bear eyewitness testimony to any doubters. Paul also said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that the validity of the Christian doctrine hinges on the truth of the resurrection. He wrote, beginning with verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 15, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. In other words, if Christ was not resurrected, Christianity is a sham. It is a fraud. And your faith is worthless. The validity of Christianity hinges on the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we, speaking of himself and the other apostles and others who 
testified to the truth of it, says, We are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. So there is no more important core doctrine to Christianity than the truth of the resurrection. Now, another evidence that the resurrection did in fact happen is that Saul, who later was called Paul, was suddenly converted from a zealous persecutor of Christians to a foremost advocate for Christ. Having, as he testified, having had an encounter with the risen, with the risen Jesus. And this sudden change caused him, this sudden, uh, this event caused a sudden change in his entire life. He gave up an exalted status in the Jewish community. And, and instead of being celebrated, he began to suffer persecution. He suffered much persecution and many trials, including beatings, imprisonment, death threats, and much more, and finally martyrdom in order to serve Christ. And he wrote in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, Philippians 3 and verse 8, Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellency of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He said, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness which is from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which is from God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So Paul was willing to give up everything, including his life, on the basis of his faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that he too could be resurrected from the dead. Another evidence in favor of the resurrection occurring is that before the death of Jesus, Jesus' brothers did not believe in him, nor were they his followers. We read in John 7 and verse 5, for even his brothers did not believe in him. That would be his physical brothers. So they did not believe in him, as we read, but something changed. Something caused them to change their attitude. Immediately after his death and resurrection, his brothers became believers. Forty days after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven, and afterward his disciples were assembled in a room in Jerusalem. And we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 14 of this, it says, of those assembled there, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. 
So notice included in this group of disciples were his brothers. His brother James became the leading apostle of the church after a period of time. James made the final decision for the church regarding the circumcision of adult Gentile converts in the conference recorded in Acts 15. And he wrote the epistle of James, which is part of the New Testament scriptures. When Paul returned from a desert where he had spent three years following his conversion, he wrote later in Galatians 1, beginning with verse 18, Galatians 1, verse 18, he wrote, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Jude was another brother of Jesus, and he also became a leader in the church, and he wrote the epistle of Jude. James' death as a martyr was documented by Josephus, the Jewish historian, who wrote about it. And Clement, who was another leader in the church who is believed to have written a, a document that's often referred to as Clement. And he also wrote of him, although Clement, by the way, is not mentioned in that document as the author, but many, I'd say the majority of the scholars who studied the matter believe that Clement was the author in a letter that he wrote to the Corinthian church. Uh, he mentions uh, James. Another evidence in favor of the resurrection is the empty tomb. Now, if you remember the account in the Gospels, when Jesus died, a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who was a rich man and a member of the Sanhedrin, requested, and he was also a disciple of Jesus secretly, but, but he requested the body so that he could take it and bury it in his own tomb which was a sort of a cave that had been excavated into the side of a mountain near Jerusalem. And so that's where Jesus, according to the scripture, was buried. This was right near Jerusalem, just a short distance outside of the city. And it would have been easy for anyone to find out if that tomb was still occupied or not. The most logical way to account for the empty tomb of Jesus is that he was resurrected as the Bible states. Neither the Jews nor the Romans disputed the fact that the tomb was empty. In fact, they both circulated stories that Jesus' body had been stolen from the tomb. Gary R. Habermas, a biblical scholar who has researched the resurrection extensively, wrote, and he's writing in an article on the resurrection for the Encyclopedia of Christian Civilization, and he states there that, quote, a majority of scholars concede that the tomb in which Jesus was buried was found empty just a short time afterwards. Now, various theories have been developed to account for the empty tomb, 
such as that the disciples stole the body, as we've mentioned, how they managed to do that with armed Roman guards guarding the place, nobody can really explain. Another theory is that somehow Jesus escaped from the tomb. Now, this idea is completely absurd for several reasons. Anyone who knows anything about Roman crucifixions and how they were carried out would find this theory utterly ridiculous. First of all, he was beaten nearly to the point of death before he was crucified, as was typical. And then the Romans were not in the habit of halfway crucifying somebody and then letting them down off of the cross or the stake alive. And it was confirmed, according to Scripture, that Jesus was actually dead when they came to break the legs of the people being crucified that day. And they did not break Jesus' legs because they saw that he was already dead. A soldier thrust a spear into Jesus' ribcage, probably penetrated his heart, and he bled, and he bled whatever blood was left in him to the ground. Another theory is that he was actually just in a swoon and not really dead. And then when the tomb was opened uh, three days later, he was thought to be dead, but he wasn't, which is equally ridiculous as the others. But all of those theories that have been presented to account for the empty tomb, contrary to the scriptural account, are hollow and lack common logic as well as any proof. They're all simply fables to account for the empty tomb, aside from all the eyewitness testimony of those who saw Jesus alive afterward. Now, as we've seen, not all professing Christians believe in the resurrection of Jesus. According to a survey that we quoted earlier, fewer than half of those who profess to be Christians in Britain believe in the resurrection. Now, there are many others who profess Christ, no doubt many millions around the world, who do believe in the resurrection. Nevertheless, I think it's fair to say that only a tiny minority of professing Christians believe that Jesus Christ was in the grave for three days and three nights, and then he was resurrected. Yet that is a critical part of the only sign Jesus said would prove that he is the Messiah or the coming one, which was an appellation for the Messiah often used among the Jews of his day. Unlike the popular teaching of a Friday crucifixion and a Sunday resurrection, the truth is that Jesus was crucified in the middle of the week on a Wednesday and buried at sunset. He was in the grave from then until sunset on the following weekly Sabbath, which was a full three days and three nights. And it was three days and three nights that he spent in the grave after he had been crucified, not one day and two nights. Now, I won't take the time to explain in detail how this is proven from Scripture today, but I have explained it in detail in chapters 6 and 7 of the booklet available from our, from our website. 
The booklet's title is When is the Biblical Passover? And it can be downloaded free from our website or we will send anyone a print version upon request. For the purpose of this sermon, it's important to remember that the preeminent sign Jesus gave to prove that he was the Messiah to that generation included the fact that he would be in his grave three days and three nights, a sign that most of those who claim to be Christian reject. However, the sign of Jonah is not limited to the fact that Jesus would be in the grave for three days and three nights. That's part of it, but the sign of Jonah includes much more. Let's review again what Jesus said in Matthew 12 about the sign of Jonah. Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the Jews and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Now notice here that Jesus does not refer only to being three days and three nights in the heart of the earth in this statement. He also indicts the generation of those to whom he was speaking as an evil and adulterous generation. He also says that the men of Nineveh would rise up and condemn or speak against it as, as it's translated in the Bible in worldwide English. In other words, that they would judge as guilty that generation because the Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah and the generation present during his ministry did not on the whole repent at the preaching of Jesus who was greater than Jonah. The sign of Jonah was fulfilled not only in Jesus being in the grave for three days and three nights, but also in all aspects of the ministry of Jesus including his miracles, but especially his commands to repent and his warnings of what would happen if they did not repent, as well as mercy and compassion on those who did repent. Notice what we read in Luke 11, beginning with verse 21. Luke 11 and verse 21. While the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign and no sign will be, be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. Notice here he doesn't limit the sign to the three days and three nights. In fact, probably the Ninevites didn't even know about Jonah being in the fish for three days and three nights. But it was Jonah who became a sign to the Ninevites. And he said, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. 
How was Jonah assigned to the Ninevites? Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites not only nor even primarily because he was swallowed by a fish and then deposited on dry land for three days and three nights. He was assigned to the Ninevites because of his preaching, because he warned them to repent. As we read, Jonah 3 and verse 4, Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. He proclaimed a message of repentance and a warning of what would happen if they did not repent. In like manner, Jesus and his message was assigned to his generation and to future generations, including ours. Notice Jesus' message, summarized in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. Mark 1 and verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That is sort of a summary of Jesus' message of his ministry. In Matthew 22, we find a parable of a marriage feast and Jesus in this parable warned the people of that generation and of generations to come. Beginning with verse 4, Matthew 22 and verse 4, again he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. Or the wedding feast as we see from the context. And that's uh, what the Greek word often meant that's used here. A wedding feast. And it goes on to say in verse 5, they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. In other words, they paid little attention to the invitation. The gospel is not only a warning message, it's an invitation to partake of God's kingdom. But it wasn't uh, something that most of the people took seriously. They had more important things to do, at least things that they thought were more important. And it says, And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Jonah warned the Ninevites that they had 40 days to repent or their city would be destroyed. They repented and God spared them until their sins at a later time led them to destruction. The day for a year principle is frequently ap applicable in understanding prophecy. When Israel complained and rebelled in the wilderness, after spying out the land God was to give them as an inheritance, God sent this word to them. As we read in Numbers 14, beginning with verse 34, Numbers 14, verse 34, according to the number of days 
in which you spied out the land 40 days, for each day you shall bear your guilt for one year, namely 40 years, and you shall know my rejection. I, the Lord, have spoken this. I will surely do so to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me in this wilderness. They shall be consumed, and there they shall die. So for each day, there was a year of punishment. Forty is a number often associated with judgment in the Bible. And God had pronounced a judgment on the people of Israel for rebelling against him time after time. In Ezekiel chapter 4, Ezekiel 4 and verse 4, God told Ezekiel, lie also on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their iniquity. For I have laid on you the years of their iniquity according to the number of days. 390 days, so you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. So Ezekiel lay on his side one day for each year of punishment God pronounced for Israel in this particular prophecy. After proclaiming the gospel and warning the people to repent for three and a half years of his ministry, Jesus was slain on the Passover. Now, it may have been on the Passover of 31 AD, or it may have been on the Passover of 30 AD, as with many questions regarding chronology, there is controversy over this issue. But it is interesting that if, in fact, 30 AD is the year that Jesus was crucified, it was exactly 40 years after that event that the Roman general Titus laid siege to Jerusalem. As we read from the website, BibleHistory.com in an article entitled The Destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. We read this statement, quote, Titus with his Roman legions arrived at the outermost northern wall of Jerusalem, the Passover of 70 AD. The Passover of 70 AD, 40 years to the day from the time of Jesus' crucifixion, if that occurred in 30 AD. The Romans built embankments of earthenwork and they placed battering rams and the siege began, which led to the complete destruction of Jerusalem. In 2015, a survey by Barna Group found that of those adult Americans surveyed, 56% believed Jesus was God. Only 48% of millennials believe that Jesus was God. Millennials are defined roughly as those born from about 1980 to about 2000 AD. And it states in the report on this survey, quote, millennials are the only generation among whom fewer than half believe Jesus was God. That is fewer than half in the United States. Millennials are the only generation among whom fewer than half believe Jesus was God. Some other interesting results of this survey in the matter of making a commitment to Jesus, only six in 10 white Americans report having done so, which is 60%, compared to eight in 10 black Americans, which is 80%, and nearly two thirds of all non-white Americans, or 65%. 
It goes on to say the more money people make, the less likely they are to have committed to Jesus. Those making more than 100000 per year are significantly less likely at 53% to have made such a commitment than those making between 50000 and 100000 63%, and those making less than 50000 which is 65%. So among these breakdowns of income, the highest number that profess to be committed Christians is found among the lowest income group. It goes on to say, of course, millennials are much less likely than any other group to have made a personal commitment to Jesus that is still important in their life today. Fewer than half of millennials say they have made such a commitment at 46%, compared to 6 in 10 Gen Xers, 59%, two-thirds of boomers, 65%, 7 in 10 elders, or 71%. And these are progressing from the younger to older generations as viewed by people who took this survey. Another survey released in 2018 reveals some additional interesting facts relating to the sign of Jonah. Christianity Today, a magazine, Christianity Today, reported in October 2018 on a survey conducted by Ligonier Ministries in the Lifeway and Lifeway Research. And the title that uh, Christianity Today gave on this report is quote, Christian, what do you believe? Probably a heresy about Jesus, says survey. Well, here are the, some of the results from this survey taken in 28, or actually it's taken a little before, but reported on in 2018 in this article. The survey concluded the following. Six in 10 Americans agree that, quote, religious belief is a matter of personal opinion and not about objective truth. It's not about truth, it's about one's opinions. And one in three evangelicals say the same. Concerning the beliefs of those who, who label themselves evangelicals, here are some of the things they were said to believe in this survey. 51% believe that God accepts the worship of all religions. These are evangelicals. 52% said they believe that most people are basically good. And 78% of evangelicals, according to the survey, agree that Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God the Father the first and greatest being created by God the Father. Concerning so-called social issues, as they referred to in this survey, more Americans agree than disagree that the Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior doesn't apply today. 44% believe that it does not apply. 41% believe it does. According to the same survey, 52% of Americans believe abortion is a sin. Now, astoundingly, despite what was seen already about the beliefs of millennials, 64% of millennials believe Jesus Christ will return to judge the world. 
They don't believe he was resurrected, but they believe that he will return to judge the world. <laughs> now, that's a head-scratcher. More than half of millennials, 53%, now agree that the Bible contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. 54% of millennials believe sex outside of marriage is a sin. 51% of millennials in this survey believe the Bible's condemnation of homosexuality is outdated. And 46% believe that gender identity is a choice. In other words, God doesn't get to choose your gender, you do. No matter what the facts are. <laughs> No matter what the science is, as they say, these people talk about how much they follow science. So what does this tell us? What this tells us is that a large percentage of people may profess to believe certain things the Bible teaches, but most of them are confused, leaning to their own understanding in many matters of faith and morality. The message of Christ to this generation as to his own generation when he was in the flesh is repent and believe the gospel but most are not listening which tells us that most people are not really convinced deep down that Jesus is in fact the Messiah Paul wrote in Acts 17 verse 30 Acts 17 verse 30 Paul wrote God now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. If Christ hasn't been resurrected, then he's not coming back to judge the world. But the Bible assures us in many prophecies throughout the Old and New Testaments tell us that he will do exactly that. The final proof that Jesus is the Messiah will come in due time when, in fact, he makes his appearance in his glorified state. Then mankind will know who is the true God. As we read in Jeremiah 31, beginning with verse 33, Jeremiah 31, verse 33, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Notice it says no more after Christ returns Will others have to teach people about who is the Messiah because it says they all will know me from the least to the greatest. Christ will sit on his throne in Jerusalem and all nations will come to know him, not only the Israelites, but all nations. And there will be no doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. We read in Isaiah 66 and verse 23, it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. 